Tom and Sheila and kiddos, it's good to have you guys here today. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, the topic that we're going to discuss this uh, morning is one that is near and dear to my heart. It's the topic of peace. Uh, but before we get uh, too far into it, let me uh, take a moment and uh, pray. Uh, precious Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you now as a, a church family. Uh, Lord, we want to thank you for uh, the beautiful uh, gift of art that you gave to Olivia and Candace to share with us. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, the Hess family and all that they mean to our church family, dear God. And we pray now, uh, Father, as we uh, search your word, that your Holy Spirit would dwell richly in this place. Uh, Lord God, I come uh, before you now, uh, Lord, as a mere man. Uh, Lord, with plenty of flaws, which you know well. Uh, Lord, struggles with sin. Uh, Lord, which you uh, regularly hold me account to. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, in the midst of my weakness and uh, my fallibility, uh, that your Holy Spirit, Lord, might uh, Lord envelop me, that you might speak uh, through me, that the words that flow from this tongue would not be uh, flawed words from Mike Leonzo, but they would be uh, beautiful words that would come from your spirit. Uh, Lord, for uh, the times where there are error, I seek your grace. And uh, we pray, Heavenly Father, that this would be a blessing uh, to your people and that you might be glorified. And it's through your Son's name we pray. Amen. You know, it seems as if peace is one of those things that everyone is pursuing, but, but few people actually get to, to fully uh, experience it. And at times, uh, that has been the case in my life on a, on a personal level. Uh, if you've been here at uh, Living Water for any le- uh, amount of time, you know that uh, the way that I typically seek peace is through order. I like things in my life to be orderly. Uh, I like things to be under control, uh, things to be quiet and calm. Uh, I strive for Kathy and I to get along. I like for my grown kids to do the things that they're supposed to do. Actually, I like for my grown kids to do the things that I would like them to do, but that doesn't always happen. Uh, I like being healthy. Uh, I like for money not to be an issue uh, in my life. I like to be in right relationship uh, with my neighbors and my friends and especially uh, my coworkers here at Living Water. I like for everything in my house to work. I, you know, I want my uh, furnace to heat. I want my air conditioned to condition. I want my sinks to drain, my stove to cook, my toilets to flush. I want all of those things to work. I especially like it when all of the uh, warning lights on my 2003 Buick Century's dashboard are off, which most recently haven't been the case. I, I've never had a car where all the lights were on at one time, but that's what I'm dealing with at the present moment. And uh, no doubt, uh, many of you probably share some of those same desires. You probably have your own uh, uh, person that you want to get along with, uh, so you probably don't have a desire for me and Kathy to get along, but you probably have a desire to get along with your own spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend or or kids or whatever. But you know, that isn't all that I desire as it relates to peace. Uh, I I also desire some things, not just on a personal level, but also on on a societal level. You know, I want wars to cease. I, I don't want our, our men and women to have to go to faraway places and, and to, to fight battles and things like that, uh, to be, be wounded, some killed, uh, many emotionally scarred. I, I don't want that. I, I, I would like to have peace on earth. I desire that. I, I want shootings and stabbings and muggings and, and, and rapes and other types of, of violence to, 
Dan, just uh, about an hour ago, Kathy came to me, and a, a young boy who used to come to, to Living Water uh, with, his, with his mom and his brother and his two sisters, who was probably, last time I probably saw him when he was in fourth grade, last night he was murdered in front of his house here in Swatera Township. I don't want that to happen. I don't want bad things to happen to people. I want racism uh, to end. I want all people from, you know, billionaire tech tycoons uh, to welfare recipients to be generous and, and kind to people. I want families to, to function well. I want life to, to be valued from every phase. I want those in, in government to work together for the common good. I want justice for all and, and God's truth and, and, and God's law and morality to be joyously embraced by all people. And, and, and you know, I say to myself, if I have those things, then I'll have peace. And I've convinced myself that that's what will happen. That if all of those things come together, that I will have peace. In Webster's Dictionary, it defines peace as this. Freedom from war or stopping of war. Freedom from public disturbance or disorder. Harmony and undisputed state, uh, undisturbed state of mind. Absence of mental conflict. Serenity, calm, quiet, tranquility. But the question is, is that really peace? And if it is, is that actually achievable? And more importantly than that, uh, is that peace, the peace that Webster's defines, is it going to give you and me that for which we really, really long? You see, if everything that I mentioned came to pass, my question is this, would that yearning that's deep in my soul and deep in your soul, would it really ultimately be satisfied. And unfortunately, I don't think that's the case. In the Bible, there is a, a small book in the Old Testament. It's uh, 12 chapters long. It was written by perhaps the wealthiest and wisest king to ever walk the face of the planet. His name was King Solomon. The book is called Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, he reflects on, on the fullness of his life. He, he thinks about all the things that he labored to possess, the money, the fame, the pleasure, the wisdom, the power, the national unity that he sought out. He thinks of all of those things, and they're all things that we think will bring us peace. And listen to what Solomon concludes. In Ecclesiastes 2, he says this, so I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. I mean, isn't that so incredibly sad? King Solomon looks over the, the fullness of his life. A life that's overflowing with wealth and, and power and pleasure and prestige and great wisdom. And in the end, rather than finding contentment, rather than finding peace, he, he finds vanity, disillusionment, and disappointment. So much so that he says he hates his life. There are probably some of you in this room that can relate to that. Maybe you're not as rich as Solomon. Perhaps you're not as wise as Solomon. Maybe you have not achieved 
that which Solomon has achieved, but you've done okay for yourself. You find yourself saying there's got to be something more, something greater than what I have achieved, something more lasting, something more satisfying, something ultimately more life-giving. Brothers and sisters, that something is more, that something more is, is ultimately peace. And peace is one of the central themes of Christmas. But the peace of Christmas is unlike the peace that our culture seeks to find. And more than that, it is a peace that is obtained in a way that is far different than many people are willing to accept. And I want to show that to you this morning. If you have a Bible with you or a a Bible app on your smartphone, uh, make your way to Luke chapter 2. If you don't own a Bible and you don't own a smartphone, uh, you'll find smartphones on the tables around the room. No, actually, you'll find Bibles on the tables around the room. Uh, please feel free to take one of those. If you don't own a Bible, we want that to be yours as a gift from us. Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 21. Uh, if you are able to stand, if you would do so, please, in honor of God's Word. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus to all, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel or suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So allow me to draw your attention this morning, not to the baby Jesus, 
not to his mother Mary, nor his father Joseph. Allow me to draw your attention to a group of unnamed shepherds working the third shift in the cold windswept fields outside the city of Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus. We don't know their names. We don't know their ages. We don't know how many there were. The only thing we know about them is they were the overlooked of the world, living on the, the lower rungs of the economic ladder, working hard to eke out an existence. They were just uh, one of the countless groups of anonymous peoples that society doesn't pay much attention to. Yet amazingly, of all the people that God could, could send the message that his son had been born, he chooses this group of shepherds. Now this, of course, is extremely good news for you and me. You see, God sending, shepherd, or sending angels to shepherds shows us that God doesn't play favorites, that God does not determine one's value and worth in the same way that our world determines one's values and worth. God doesn't announce Jesus' birth to, to great government officials or powerful military leaders or, or ivory tower theologians. Instead, he chooses those who are lowly, humble, cast aside, those who some would consider are unworthy. People like you and people like me. People who battle with sin. People who don't get it right all of the time. People who fail more than they succeed. People who say things that they shouldn't say. And people who do things that they should not do. And I've always found great comfort in the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1 when he says this, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, the God of the Christian Bible, he works in very unexpected ways. In a world that celebrates power and privilege and popularity, in a world that, that cares about you know, how many uh, likes you have on your Facebook post or your Instagram post or uh, your, you know, your Hotmail account or whatever you got out there, I don't know what they are, but in a world that celebrates those things both today but also 2,000 years ago. Yeah, I know Instagram wasn't back there and stuff like that, but the world back then, it celebrated power and prestige and, and popularity. In the midst of a world like that, God chooses to incarnate himself in a baby born in an animal stall to a teenage mom with a working-class husband 
And God tells the world about it all through a bunch of sheep herders in a backwater town. That's crazy. But that's the God that we serve. But it wasn't just the recipients of the angelic message that were unexpected. It was also the message itself. Look again at, at verses 10 through 14. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. They, they, they show up and they say, A child has been born in the city of David that will be a Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. And with this baby who is the Savior of humanity comes an obvious response from heaven and a very unexpected promise to those of us on earth. Look carefully at verse 14. There's the obvious response. Heaven is delighting. There is a, a party in the heavenly realms because the, the God of the universe has incarnated himself in, in this baby. What, what angels have been waiting for for untold time now has arrived. And there is joy and rejoicing in heaven. Completely expected. But what is unexpected is the promise for those of us on earth. That it's through this baby, through the Messiah, that God brings peace to those whom he calls to himself. But what exactly is the peace that God is talking about here? It's the biblical shalom of the Old Testament. It is an entirely different and far superior peace than the trouble-free life and prosperity that our world foolishly equates with peace. Our world hears peace and thinks, you know what peace is? Peace is a day at home with no kids, no spouse, no chores, no interruptions. There are some ladies in this room right now who are like, yes, that is peace. You give me that. You just let me at home with a book all day long, I'm there. That's, that's Kathy's idea of peace. No Mike, no Mike, no Cole, John, you know, no phone, no nothing. Just give me a book. Kathy says that's peace. Others say, you know what, you give me a, a life of physical health and financial prosperity, and man, I got peace. Others who are a little less self-centered than all of that, uh, they're like, you know, you get the Jews and the Arabs and, and, and you get them to work together, then, then we got peace. But when we consider those examples, we discover that, that the peace that, that we're looking for is based what? It's based on our circumstances. And you and I get that. How many times have we said, if only this happens, then my life will be better? If only my spouse treats me better? If only if I had a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, if only I was married, if only I was divorced, if only I had kids, if only I didn't have kids, if only I had more money or a nicer home or a better car or a different job, if only I have this, if only I have that. And then 
all those if-onlys, what do they do? They demonstrate that many of us are seeking peace based on our circumstances. But here's the problem. The day that we get all of those if-onlys, we sadly discover that we still don't have peace that we desperately desire. And the result, we end up like King Solomon looking at our life through the lens of despair. Now, the reason for this disappointment is because we are searching for the wrong kind of peace. We want a peace that flows through these earthly temporal circumstances. But the problem is, you know what? Our circumstances are always changing. Most of the time, those changes are completely out of our control. My friend whose son died this morning or last evening, completely out of his control. The drunk driver who's getting into his car this afternoon and is going to cross the double yellow line, completely out of our control. That lump we find on our body, completely out of our control. You see, when we are looking for a peace that is based on circumstances, we will always, always, always be disappointed. Because the reality is we need a peace that transcends circumstances. A peace that is rooted in the heavenly, eternal, right relationship with God. A peace that doesn't evaporate the moment that something goes wrong in our lives, which is going to inevitably happen. That, brothers and sisters, that peace, the peace that we need, is shalom. It is an all-encompassing fullness. It's a completeness, a contentment that comes with a, a right relationship with God that completely transcends our circumstances. And the reason that shalom is so hard to find is that whether we want to admit it or not, that we are at war. And war is not with evil nations or conflicting ideologies or systemic injustice. Rather, it's a war with God. Now, we get that to a certain degree. After all, uh, this world has... Uh, some people who are clearly at, at war with God, and we know that. For example, atheists. Guys like Richard Dawkins, Peter Singer, Christopher Hitchin, they are actively doing everything they can do to destroy any notion of God. But they are in the minority. There are other people who are at war with God, and it's those who are neutral about him. They can take God or, or leave him. They, they really don't care. They simply don't want to be bothered with him. They're not actively hostile to God, but they want to do their own thing, and they want to do it their own way. They don't want any God to, to get in the way and derail what they want. So as long as God is, is staying out of their way, as long as God isn't rocking their boat, they're fine with him. But when he gets in the way... When what they do conflicts with what God does, when, when what they say conflicts with what God says, neutrality is kicked to the curb and they man their battle stations because they are ultimately at war with God. And the idea that people can be enemies of God is found throughout the pages of Scripture. 
Let me give you an example. Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, the term flesh, it refers to our natural state, our state that is infected with sin. And as such, our natural state is always in hostility to God. And we know how this works. Deep down inside of every one of us, we don't want anybody to tell us what we want to do. We want to do our own thing. We want to make our own rules. Ultimately, in our natural state, we want to be our own God. Ephesians 2 speaks to the same issue. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is reminding Christians who, who were, uh, before they had confessed their sins and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he says, look, I want you Christians to, to think back to what you were like before you confessed your sins and received Jesus as Savior. And he says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Those of you who are Christians here today who have confessed your sins and have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that's who you were before. And that's who I was. And I remember how I lived back then. I remembered how I was carrying out the desires of my body and my mind. And I had no clue what I was ultimately an enemy of God. See, apart from faith in Jesus, we are enemies of God. We might not consider ourselves God enemies. We might think that we're neutral towards God. But the bottom line is our very sin nature is battling God constantly. So is it any wonder why peace is so elusive? And on the surface, we get this. We get that atheists are enemies of God. It makes sense that those who are ambivalent to God are his enemies. But what about religious people? Is it possible that people who go to church the people who pray, people who call themselves Christians, people who eat at Chick-fil-A and shop at Hobby Lobby. Is it possible that those people can be at war with God? Especially, absolutely, positively, religious people can definitely be at war with God. See, one of the greatest problems that religious people have is that they are ultimately trying to control God. And they do it by seeking to obey God, not because they truly love him, but rather because they want him to do things for them. They don't come right out and say it, but their actions and their attitudes, they clearly convey it, especially when things don't go their way. God doesn't deliver in the way that they expect God to deliver and what they become angry with him. Why? Because deep down inside, they believe that God owes them something because of their worship, 
because of their service and because of their giving. Want to know if a person who's religious is really an enemy of God? Just think of someone who you knew, who faithfully attended church and then something went wrong in their life. Maybe they were offended by somebody. Maybe a tragedy visited their life. Uh, Maybe a host of other disappointments came their way. Whatever it was, God didn't deliver the way that they thought that he should. And as a result, worshiping God with other Christians and serving God is the last thing that they want to do. And sadly, when you identify someone like that, Perhaps it's even yourself. You can quite be quite certain they weren't worshiping God because they loved God. Instead, they were worshiping God because they wanted to see what God would do for them. And that brings us to the root cause of our peace, or our lack of peace. You see, the primary reason why peace is so elusive is because we haven't made peace with God. Pastor and Tim Keller in his wonderful little book called Hidden Christmas. If you don't have this book, you should buy it. It is one of those tiny little books about yay big, about yay thick. Probably costs you 10 bucks on Amazon or Christian book distributors. This is what he says. He says, there is no peace on earth because there is no peace with God. So the obvious question is, how in the world do you and I make peace with God? Well, the answer might surprise you. We make peace with God by recognizing that we can't make peace with God. The only way that we can truly make peace with God is if God ultimately makes peace with us. Let me show you as we look a little further in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed For the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. When Jesus was eight days old, uh, most probably there in Bethlehem, he was circumcised by a local priest. 
And then sometime later, when Jesus was at least 40 days old, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to dedicate him to the Lord. Why some 40 days? Well, his parents had to wait 40 days until Mary would have been clean according to the law and actually been able to go into the temple after giving birth to a child. And there in the temple, they meet a faithful old Jewish man by the name of Simeon who had been told by God that he wouldn't die until he sees the Lord's Christ. And upon seeing Jesus, Simeon declares these words, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. To which we are told that Mary and Joseph, they marvel at those words. Who wouldn't marvel at those words? These are great words. Listen to the, think about this child that we have. This is incredible. They're amazed by this. This is the stuff that Hallmark movies are made of, folks. This is beautiful. But then Simeon says something so heart-earth-shattering that it would never make it past the Hallmark Channel censors, folks. He says something so against the popular Christian narrative that it typically never finds its way into a Christmas message. Verses 34 and 35. And Simeon blessed them. Think about this blessing that Mary's about to receive. Behold, this child is appointed for the rising and the fall of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You see, in the midst of the peaceful images of little baby Jesus in a manger surrounded by a loving mom and a faithful Joseph and a couple cows and some sheep and some shepherds and a heavenly host singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he's well pleased. In the midst of all of that is images of conflict and death. And much of our world wants to relocate Jesus to an innocent baby in a manger. They want the sweetness and the tenderness of the manger seen. Well, if you and I want to find peace, if we want to find real peace, peace with God, a a peace that doesn't wither in the midst of divorce or disappointment or distress or disease or death, then the place to look isn't in the manger. It's on the cross of Calvary. It's Jesus' death and resurrection that offers true peace. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah speaking of Jesus hundreds and hundreds of years before he was born. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, surely he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smit my God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. And check this last part out. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds, we are healed. So where does true peace come from? No matter how hard we try, you and I will never find it in an overflowing bank account, in an immaculate home, in a ripped physique, in a perfect family, in a carefully planned retirement, or a life of health, wealth, and comfort. All of those things might offer peace, but they will always be temporary. It will be earthly. It will never, ever sustain us. When the inevitable pain of this broken world comes calling in our lives, true peace, lasting peace, peace beyond our circumstances, comes with fully embracing not just the baby in the manger, but also the man on the cross. Shortly before going to the cross, Jesus called his disciples together and warned them of the struggles that they would face, not only during his impending arrest and crucifixion, but also after he arose from the death and they were dead and they were on their own. And this is what he told them. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Do you want to have true, lasting peace? It comes with being reconciled with the God of the universe. That's where it comes from. Those who who have fully confessed their sins and who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are, are put into a place where they can have peace in the midst of horrific circumstances. You can lose your job, lose your spouse, lose your child, lose your health, lose your bank account. And while you may not be running around the the world skipping and jumping, you can have peace knowing that the God of the universe is in control. That those things that have come your way have either come through his actions or through his permission, because he loves you. And he has an amazing desire for you to be conformed into the image of his son. And that's the the goal of, of, of ultimately being a Christian, is to be like Jesus. What was Jesus like? Jesus suffered. When suffering comes into our lives as Christians, we should not be surprised. That is, that is how our, our Savior lived. Things are ultimately not going to be made right in our lives until we are on the other side of eternity. Does, does that mean that a Christian life isn't going to have, have joy and, and excitement? No, of course it's going to. But there are going to be times when it is hard and when the unexpected come. And we will quickly find out whether the peace that we have in our lives is a temporal, earthly peace determined by circumstances, or whether it is a lasting, eternal peace determined by the glorious God of the universe who loved you so very much that he came to this earth as a child, lived as a carpenter, served as a teacher, died as a savior, and rose again as a king. 
Glory be to God. Pray, Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, this time. Thank you for the truth of your word. Father, I pray for those in this room right now, Lord, who are fully devoted followers of you. And I pray for them, Heavenly Father, as they, uh, many of them go through the struggles of life. Uh, Lord, things have come to them from the left and the right. Uh, life is, is not just perfect. It is hard at times. Yet, Heavenly Father, they are clinging to you. And Lord, you are giving them what you promised in Philippians chapter 4, that you would give us a peace that passes all understanding that will guard our heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Lord, allow those who look at us from the outside who wonder, how in the world is this person standing up under the midst of this struggle? Lord, let your light shine brightly in our lives. And Father, for those in this room who have yet come to faith in you, who have yet to confess their sins, Heavenly Father, who, who are seeking to, to have peace through circumstances and, and uh, the, the things of this world, Heavenly Father, Lord, I look not at them with condemnation because I walked amongst them at one time. I pray, Heavenly Father, that in your grace, that you would show them the futility of seeking peace without you. God, would you spare them for, from a, a, a life of despair and, and heartache where there is not hope. And Lord, would you open their eyes to their great need for your Son? Might you reveal to them the way that you revealed to me and to others our own sin? Might you reveal their sin to them? Might they recognize that there is no way to be good enough to earn their way into your salvation? And might they fall on their knees, Heavenly Father, confess their sins and receive your Son, Jesus Christ, through faith. He said that he is the way and the truth and the life, that no one comes to you but through the Son. I thank you for that, God. I thank you for this wonderful Christmas season. I pray, Heavenly Father, as we... Uh, do these last closing elements of the service that, Lord, you might continue to be glorified. And it's through your Son's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.